Welcome. Good morning again to you. Uh, I'll introduce myself earlier as Kyle, serve as lead pastor here. I'm glad that you're here. If you have your Bible, would you please open to Titus chapter 1? Titus chapter 1. Uh, we're going to continue in the series which we began last week. Titus, uh, the, uh, I guess the subtitle to that or the theme of this is uh, observing how the gospel and godliness work together. How does the gospel produce godliness? How does godliness inform uh, the gospel? How do they work hand in hand for uh, the good of the church, uh, the good of the world, and the glory of God. And so we'll get into those, those things as we roll today. Today what we're going to observe is, the, is the, the kind of men that are called to lead a church as elders, that they are be, to be full of both the gospel and godliness. Let's, let's read together verses 1, uh, 5 through 9. Uh, chapter 1, 5 through 9, sorry, not verses 1, 5. That would be 15, so... Anyway, let's read together 1 through 9 here. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it instructs us, that it guides us, that it corrects us, rebukes us, and that it teaches us, it trains us in all matters of godliness, that we might be uh, complete in Christ. And Father, I pray that now for uh, myself and these hearers, these listeners, my dear brothers and sisters, we've gathered today uh, to hear from your word. Lord, we're not here to hear my words, we're here to hear your words. And Father, help us to hear them well, help us to uh, hide them in our heart that we might not sin against you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Paul, uh, as we discussed last week, has left Titus, who is a close companion, he's a fellow worker of the gospel. He's left him in Crete, this island off the coastland or the mainland of Greece. And here in verse 5, what we see is that he's, he's given him two tasks. One is to put what remains into order, put what remained into order, and appoint elders in every town. The, the first task mentioned, as well as what we see in the rest of the book of Titus, gives us some context clues as to what in the world is going on in the churches in Crete. What is this task that lays before Titus? And it reveals the difficulty of it, the difficult nature of it, that it's not an easy task, that it's something that is going to require much hard work and it's going to require men who can join in on this kind of work. The churches in every town need to be put into order, Paul says, put what remain into order. There, they're disorderly. This doesn't mean that they're completely dysfunction, but dysfunctional, but there is dysfunction within the churches. And if you've ever been a part of a church that was dysfunctional, a church who has traded the vision of Christ-centered discipleship for others, 
for a self-centered culture, a self-centered um, way of thinking about the Lord, a self-centered way of thinking about the church, then you know something about the difficulty facing these Christians. You know a bit of something about what faces these soon-to-be pastors who will be put into the churches in every town. You know what's facing or something about what's facing Titus. I'll go ahead and give you a few things that we see in Titus, a few reasons we know these churches were in dysfunction, that these churches were having some problems, that there were some things that needed to be put into order. One of the first things we read about in Titus is that there are false teachers upsetting whole families in verse 11. It says that those, those false teachers must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Their teaching does not accord with sound doctrine. And because it does not accord with sound doctrine, does not accord with what God has actually said in His Word, it's upsetting whole families as whole families are believing it. Whole families are giving themselves over to it. Whole families are following their corrupt leaders or these corrupt teachers. These families are likely questioning the faith. It could be doubting God's Word as they originally received it. These families are in disarray about what is the gospel, truly, and how do we believe it? How do we follow it? On top of that, there's outside pressures of worldliness that are influencing the church. In verse 12 of chapter 1, Paul says that uh, by the word of Epimenides, who was a prophet of the, their own, this prophet said, Cretans are always liars. They're evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So there's an outside pressure just from the culture of Crete. And rather than stand firm in the truths of the gospel, the church is retreating. The church is giving in. The church is even joining them in their worldliness. They're not pursuing godliness through the gospel. Which leads me to at least one final thing. I suspect there's more, but at least one more thing we see in this book is there's an ignorance. And by ignorance, I just mean a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge about the gospel and godliness. In chapters 2 through 3, Paul goes through great links to explain how the gospel should affect one's life, that it should make them zealous for good works because God has won for himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ a people who are to be zealous for good works. The gospel should affect your actions. It should change your life. It should transform you, mind, body, and soul. You go from a lover of self, a lover of the world, to a lover of God. God's love has changed your life. Paul says in chapter 3, verse 8, he said, those who believe in God may be Teach these things so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. The, the dangers facing the church today really aren't any different, though they might wear a different mask. We have dysfunctional churches throughout our city, throughout our state, throughout our nation throughout the world. There are false teachers upsetting whole families today, propping themselves up as 
pastors. These teachers in Titus receive this rebuke. But he says they are teaching for selfish gain what, not, what they ought not to teach. Silence them, Titus. Rebuke them. There are pastors who are building platforms throughout evangelicalism for their own benefit. They teach for selfish gain what ought not to be taught. One glaring example of this is the so-called health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. These self-proclaimed pastors teach, and many of them aren't even pastors. They don't have churches. They're just what you might call evangelists. But they teach that individuals who exercise true faith in Christ will surely attain physical, material, and financial prosperity. Such teaching is often tied to, if you will just sow a seed of faith into my personal ministry fund, then you will receive health, wealth, and prosperity. As foolish as that might seem to you, which I, I pray that it does, I pray you know better, it does continue to upset the faith of many families. Outside worldliness is influencing the church today as it was in Titus. We might adapt Epimenides' quote by saying the world is full of people who are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. It's foolish to look to the world for answers regarding life and godliness. We must be men and women who are of the truth of God, men and women who will go to God's word to see what it says pertaining to life and godliness. The truth is self, the word of God is self-attesting that it is truth. It proves itself as you read it from cover to cover. And what we learn about in God's word is that it has everything in it pertaining to life and godliness. You see, much of the world has convinced itself of, and I would argue apart from science, though it argues for science, that, that a baby in the womb is a mere cluster of cells, that it's not a human life. They sell it to others who will then believe it and fight for it as women's rights. Well, what about the right of that little girl? There are self-professing Christians who believe this lie, who have bought into it. In the same vein, there are self-professing Christian men who have bought the lie of critical theory, which says that they can't speak up about abortion because they aren't women. I simply cannot fathom loving baby murder this much. We see an ignorance throughout churches about the gospel and godliness. There are many who think that simply by a belief in God or that Jesus died and rose again, they will enter heaven. Now, to be clear, Romans 10.9 does say that anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. But you must define belief correctly. In James, the book of James, we see that even the demons believe and they shudder at the name of Jesus. There's a fear of God in them, not a saving fear of God, but a fear of God nonetheless. So they have belief even with shuddering, which is more than some professing Christians can say for themselves. That's not enough to save your soul. Belief in Christ's life, belief in his death, belief in his resurrection for the forgiveness of sins requires fellowship. It requires discipleship. It requires one to put his life where his mouth is. To not simply say on his Facebook profile, I am a Christian, but to actually walk 
as a Christian, not simply talk the talk. Jesus says, there will be many on the last day who say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And I will say to them, Christ says, depart from me, for I never knew you. True believers are followers of Christ. True believers are recipients of grace, of mercy, of love unto eternal life. True believers have been transformed, and so you will know them by their fruit. Christ says a bad tree cannot bear good fruit, neither can a good tree bear bad fruit. We are to be fruit inspectors when it comes to godliness in the gospel. Denying self, counting our life as lost for, the, for Christ's sake, and to follow him. That's true salvation. These are just a few things that I think Titus lays out for us. Uh, for the sake of time, we need to keep moving. But there are many dangers that are looming over the churches in Crete. There are many dangers looming outside the church of Crete. There's problems within and without. What is the answer from God for this? What does Paul instruct Titus to do what about it? What's the solution here? It's godly elders. It's godly elders. Both in the churches in Crete and in our churches today, the solution to dysfunctional churches is godly elders. The point I want to lay before you today, the point of what I think Titus is what Paul is teaching us here in Titus is that elders serve the church as pace setters. Elders serve the church as pastors. They are pace setters and pastors by nature. Not a nature of their own, a nature which has been recreated by Christ, but this is to be their nature nonetheless. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 says this. It says, and he gave, the he there is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. The shepherds and teachers' ministries exist within the context of the local church. They do not exist outside of the context of local church. They're meant to be a gift from Christ himself for the equipping and building up of the body of Christ, which is the church, both as a local expression and a global expression. So the first point I want to lay before you today is this, that elders lead the local church. Elders lead the local church. Back to Titus 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders the idea of appointment is to a, a position, to an office. Appoint the office of elder. Appoint elders. Notice it's plural also. It's not one pastor leading. It's multiple pastors leading in every town as I directed you. Elders are to lead the local church. Elders are to be ruling over the local church. Elders in every town means elders in every church within each town. We have more churches today, likely too many churches, as we've already confessed that many are dysfunctional. But the truth still stands, though, that every church is to be led by elders. 
It was normal for Paul to appoint elders after establishing churches. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we read this about Paul and Barnabas. It says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So, so Paul, on his first missionary journey, goes through these cities, and he appoints elders. Well, first, he establishes churches. And then rather than going back to Antioch, which would have been the really simple route, he retraces his steps to go check on all these churches which had been established during his ministry. And in that return trip, elders are appointed. The Holy Spirit had made it evident who the elders were, and he appoints them to that role. But Acts 14 and Titus 1 are not the only places that we read about this office of elder in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, Paul meets with the elders from Ephesus. He meets with them on the shores of Miletus, and there we see three titles that are synonymous in the New Testament, which describe the role of elders in the local church. There you see the, the, the role of elder, you see the role of overseer, and shepherd, which again is pastor. He addresses them as all three titles. In, in 1 Timothy 3, we see the word overseer. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble thing. It's used very similarly, similar as the list here in Titus 1, which again gives credit to what we laid out before you last week, that Titus 1, or Titus and 1 Timothy were likely written at the same time. In 1 Peter 5, Peter calls himself a fellow elder. He's, he's writing to many churches in the dispersion. He calls himself a fellow elder, though he was also an apostle. He identifies himself with these elders as a fellow elder. And he addresses the elders in the churches to whom he was writing. He charges them to care for the flock as a shepherd, again, pastor, to exercise oversight or be an overseer. And so we see here that elders, pastors, overseers are synonymous terms. Some translations might use the word bishop, depending on what you're reading this morning, in place of overseer, but those three words are synonymous nonetheless, describing one office which is commonly called elder. Elders are to lead the local church as overseers and pastors, or as I will emphasize today, as pace setters and pastors. Another thing we must understand is that elders are men. As the worldly feminist movement becomes more pervasive, churches continue to embrace those worldly ideologies through what is called egalitarianism. That is that men and women do not have separate roles. They can have the same roles. They are equal. And in doing so, they're renouncing the Bible's idea of complementarianism, which is that men and women are equal in value, equal in worth, as created in the image of God, as we see in Genesis 126 and 127. And he created them in his image and likeness. He created them male and female. But he gives them distinct roles. Adam was to be the worker and keeper of the garden. Adam was to leave his family and cling to his wife. His wife was to be a helpmeet to him. So the Bible has clear thoughts, clear understanding of the roles of masculinity and femininity within its definitions. This isn't a brand new thing. It's something that Paul had to address specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There we see in verses 11 through 14, it says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. 
I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Paul here is describing the roles of men and women in the local church. In chapter 3, which comes just a few verses later, he gets into the roles of elders and deacons. And he makes it clear that the role of pastor and overseer is rooted in the task of teaching the church and exercising authority over the church, which would include men and women. And so this excludes women from serving as elders or serving as pastors. This doesn't, however, exclude women from teaching women, which we'll see explicitly, and I'm excited to get into in Titus chapter 2. It doesn't exclude women from teaching children, as 2 Timothy 1.5 points out there, with Timothy's grandmother and mother who were instrumental in his faith. So a woman is not to be silent always. That's not what, that's not what Paul's saying in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He's not saying that she should never say a word, but he's saying that she is to be silent in the role of teaching men or exercising authority over men within the local church. And one clarification I think we must make is that this likely doesn't mean that a woman could not evangelize a man, she could not share the gospel with a man, but it does mean that the man's discipleship should happen with other men. 2 Timothy 2 lays this out, where Paul says, what I've proclaimed to you, entrust a faithful man who can teach other men. Titus chapter 2 gets into this about how women are to be discipling women, men are to disciple men. Why? Why why does this matter? Why is it this way? Well, God determined the order in creation. That's why Paul lays out that God created the man first and the the, the woman came after. The, The man was created first. The man is to sacrificially lead his family in matters of spirituality and love, both in the church but especially in his home. The the roles in the church mirror the roles in the home. It's the way God has established the order of such. Furthermore, we see in the descriptions of what an elder is to be in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1, that he is to be the husband of one wife, that he is to keep his children submissive, which implies the roles of husband and father, roles that belong only to men, unless you're buying into the worldliness that is present today concerning gender. Another office that I believe is open to women within the local church is the office of deacon. In 1 Timothy 3, after the male deacons are addressed, women deacons are addressed. It's often translated the word wives, but that doesn't make much sense because in 1 Timothy 3, in the, the elder qualifications, there are no qualifications for an elder's wife, which is just a few verses before. It seems like a great place to make those qualifications known if they were such. The word used for wives is simply the word for women, which gives my view some validity. It's also a view that's been practiced throughout church history by the likes of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, John Calvin, and further back than those. So we're in good company historically to practice church ecclesiology the way we do, that elders are men who serve as pastors, and deacons are men and women who serve as lead servants in the church. However, in churches where, there are de- where deacons are the governing body, which is likely what most of you grew up in if you grew up in a church around in the South, this shouldn't happen. Those deacons are functionally acting as elders, and so there should not be women present on that deacon team until the terms are clarified and the new office of elder is established. 
This is why many of you grew up in such churches without women deacons. And so maybe your knee-jerk reaction to my, my thoughts on this is negative. It's like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I'm happy to talk further about that, but I don't have time in this sermon. So let's, let's keep pressing forward. So men who aspire to the office or the role of elder, as 1 Timothy 3 puts it, are to serve as elders in the local church. And I want to lay before you today that they are to be pace setters and pastors. They're to be confirmed and affirmed by other elders and the congregation. And that congregation should then submit themselves to this godly leadership so long as their leadership is carried out in a godly way. Hebrews 13, 17 The writer there ends his book of Hebrews with several different thoughts, and one of the thoughts he lays out is this, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, is the office for any man who wants to be a pastor? No, it's not for any man who wants to be a pastor. It's for men qualified by certain characteristics first. Let's look at those characteristics in Titus 1, 6 through 8. Let me read these to us again. If anyone is above reproach, if he's the husband of one wife, if his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, an overseer is God's steward, or as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. As I read that list, I think I would happily submit myself, and I have, and and the role and the, the way our elder team functions, submit myself to men who are like this. It's a joyous thing to do. And in these verses, we see that elders are men who set the pace in godly oversight. Paul tasked Titus with choosing the right kind of men, not simply any man. These men will face difficulty from their opponents. These men will face inside and outside pressures. They must be the kind of men who can face those difficulties with godliness as they oversee the congregation under their care. The list of qualifications has more to do with the man's character than his giftedness. Please understand that today. Character in the role of pastor, really in the role of anything, is greater than giftedness. You see this with athletes all the time, right? That somebody's super talented, super gifted athletically, but their character stinks and nobody wants to be on their team, nobody wants to coach them, right? The same is true for any other role. Often, probably you work with people who are this way, who are really gifted at their job, but their character stinks, In the church, especially, this should not be the case. We should not be more gifted than we are uh, possessing the character traits of godliness. Many are gifted, right? Many pastors are gifted. They have a charismatic personality. People want to follow them. They may be a great speaker. So you hear things like that. Man, he's, he's such a great speaker. My follow-up question to that lately has been, what does that even mean? When a a pastor stands up to preach, the the congregation or the hearers ought to say, what a great God we serve, not what a great speaker you are. Amen? 
He's fun to be around. He's knowledgeable. The list can go on. But not all men have the character for the role of pastor yet. Maybe they are called by God, but Paul went through three years of training. He was practicing ministry while he was training, but he was training before he began to do mission work in Antioch and beyond. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 about elders that he must not be a recent convert. He cannot be a new believer lest he become puffed up and the devil sift him. Character often comes with seasoning. A man needs to walk the walk for some length of time. He needs to have his views challenged. He needs to get his feathers ruffled in disagreements. He needs to face fears and failures. In those moments, that's when a man's character is truly seen. There there are too many stories about pastors who started out great but flamed out in the end due to poor character. So Paul begins with, if anyone is these things, if he is above reproach, which is mentioned twice here about elders and overseers, Above reproach does not mean he is perfect. This is not the idea of perfection, but it's the idea of dependence, repentant dependence on God. He's living as one who has humility. He's living with awareness regarding his own sinfulness. He's living as one who is quick to repent, quick to apologize when the occasion arises and he causes an offense. He's remaining above reproach through confession and repentance. He's the husband of one wife. This means he's... devoted to his wife, especially in the care of her spirituality. He's caring for her spiritually, emotionally, physically, and mentally. He's a one-woman man also, sure. His eyes are on his wife only, which also implies purity. He's a pure man. I do not believe this means that a previously divorced man cannot be an elder. I don't think the Bible teaches that. I think that Those cases must be taken as a case-by-case scenario within a church. The the man would need to have a track record of repentance for the divorce and a devoted love toward his wife with some length, some years to it. He says children, and the the word here for children implies those who are still under your care. So, So not children who are out of the home, but those who are still living in your home. It says his children are believers, that they're not open to the charge of debauchery or lavishness. They're not insubordinate to authority. They're not rebellious. But here's the deal with this. A man cannot guarantee the salvation of his child, right? We understand that salvation is a work of Christ alone, a work of God alone. He initiates it. He completes this work. This can't mean that his children must be believers, but I think what it does mean is that he must be discipling them to be believers. Again, Paul in 1 Timothy 3 says that he manages his household well as he talks about the role of his marriage and the role as a father. So he's discipling his children to be believers as Deuteronomy 6, Ephesians 6, Psalm 78, and further instruct fathers to do. He is committed to raising them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord while they are under his care. And he's trusting God to save them as he works in faithfulness that way. We see that he's God's steward. He'll be held accountable as a steward, as an overseer of God's people. An elder does not have his people. He has God's people. An an elder has as his shepherd Christ, just as the members of his church have as their shepherd Christ. 
So an elder acts then as an under-shepherd to the great shepherd. He is to do what the shepherd says. He should not lead them in any direction that Christ is not instructed by his word. His commitment is to Christ. His commitment is to his word. His commitment is to their good and ultimately to God's glory alone. He is not building his own kingdom. He's building the kingdom of God. And so in that vein, he can't, He cannot be the kind of man who is arrogant. He can't be quick-tempered. He can't be a drunkard. He can't be violent or greedy for gain. And consequently, this is exactly how the false teachers acted, which we'll see next week. He is then to be hospitable, meaning he welcomes outsiders. Unbelievers are welcome in his presence. He doesn't have a disdain for them. He's welcoming them into his presence so that he might share with them the love of God. He's a lover of good. He's self-controlled. The idea of self-controlled here means that he cares about his future enough to control his passions and desires now. This goes hand in hand with being above reproach. If someone does something that causes an offense to the elder... He is slow to anger. He is self-controlled. And he makes sure to respond in such a way that he will not disqualify himself from eldership. Does that make sense? He's self-controlled. He cares about his future. He's upright, meaning he's righteous. He's just in his works and his words, his decisions. He's holy, which means he, he values purity. He values piety. He values humble devotion to the Lord. And he's disciplined, which is similar to self-control, but it was different in this in that it's, it's the idea of resolutely controlling your negative desires, which would then lead you to a positive action. So you recognize you have sinful desires in you, and so now you're taking the necessary steps to control those, and you insert positive God-honoring, God-pursuing actions. And so implicitly, not stated, but understood, he must be a mature believer. A man simply cannot do these things without humbling himself before the Lord, becoming completely dependent upon God to complete the work which God began in him. That The elder sees himself as the branch and not the vine. That Christ is the vine, he is the branch. And he understands apart from that, he will bear no fruit. But if he will abide in Christ as the branch abides in the vine and so gets its life from the vine, then he will bear fruit for the Lord and so prove to be God's disciple, as Jesus explains in John chapter 15. Having seen these characteristics, we should then have a better understanding about an elder's role. He is to set the pace for the church in godly oversight. He leads by example, not merely by word. He walks the walk and he talks the talk. And if he doesn't, then he shouldn't be considered for eldership. And if he's already an elder, then he shouldn't be an elder in a local church any longer. So what this means for you, whether you're an elder or not, as members of a local church, that this passage encourages you to do at least two things. One is to strive to have these characteristics yourselves. 
Pastors should be the kind of men who are worth following as they are following Christ. You, you become the kind of men and women, the kind of boys and girls who are walking by the Spirit of God and not by your own flesh. These qualifications for elder are basic traits of Christianity. They're not for pastors only. Just listen to Galatians 5.16, which was written to the church at Galatia, to the men and women, the boys and girls there who were serving the Lord. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. They're to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and, and things like these. Paul's saying this list isn't even complete. There are more that could be here. And he says, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, he's describing characteristics of the world here, those who follow the flesh. And then he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. And it's joy, it's peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. If you'll notice the difference, the first list is about the actions of the person. It's not merely describing their character, it's describing their actions. But the second list is about the transformed character of the man or the woman, the boy or the girl who's now in love with the Lord Jesus. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So again, the traits laid out here for elder are just simply that you're observing mature men in the Lord before you say, hey, let's call this man to become an elder candidate and potentially an elder in our church, right? But how do you observe it if men in the church are not having these things as their characteristics? They're not pursuing the Lord in such a way that it produces godliness in their life. Then there's few men to choose from. And so the pastor has his work cut out for him. He must call men to repentance, call men to value godliness, to value the gospel. So as Christians, men, women, boys, and girls, we need to pursue these things. The second thing I think that it reveals is that you should affirm future pastors who have these characteristics. Make sure that the, the men that are put before you as elder candidates exemplify these things. And if you're not sure, ask questions. The second thing is hold your current pastors accountable to these things. If you observe in us the lack of these, come to us. And please pray for us often. It would be unloving not to do so because pastors are going to give an account, as Hebrews 13 says, for the way that they led God's people. So please understand the standard of godliness here. Strive for it yourself, encourage it, and others affirm godly elders and pray for them and one another concerning these things. Now, having seen the character of the man, let us now look at his responsibilities in verse 9. Elders are pace setters, 
We just looked at, now we're going to see that elders are pastors. Verse 9, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So in verses 6 through 8, we see that the man's commitment to godliness must be present. It must be discernible, observable in his life. And now we see his commitment to the gospel of Jesus. He must be a godly overseer. And a major part of his role in oversight is to be a pastor. It's to shepherd God's people. And Paul lays out here three responsibilities of elders. The first is he holds fast to the trustworthy word as taught. He holds fast to it. He says he must hold firm or hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught. And this goes hand in hand with the idea of stewardship that we saw earlier. Church elders are to steward God's word. They're to take what God has said and to give their lives to his word. They're to live their lives in submission to it. They're to live their lives in study of it. They're to live their lives in such a way that they're not adding to God's word by adding extra commands on God's people would be one way we observe in Scripture. Pharisees were really good at that. But they're also not to take away from it. They're to know it in a way that they're sure that they're not adding to it or taking away from it, that they're holding fast to God's word as it was taught. That means as they received it. Now, this is even clearer today than it would have been in first century Christianity because we have a completed canon of Scripture. We have a New Testament which has been finished. We, we don't have to wonder what was taught. When it says hold fast to the trustworthy word is taught, we don't have to say, well, what was it? We have it from Matthew to Revelation. We have it from Genesis to Revelation. We know what is God's Word. It's written plainly for us. It's in black and white. The, the elders of God's church, they must hold fast to His Word. They must settle themselves on it. They must labor with the Holy Spirit to know God's Word. They must labor with the Holy Spirit to live according to God's Word, both personally, especially, and pastorally, I'll add especially to that also. Both are extremely important. And I would argue you cannot do this pastorally if you are not doing it personally. The, the apostles in Acts 6 had a dispute arise among them. The church is just getting going. And there was a massive moment of salvation in Acts 2 after Peter's sermon. The church has grown, and there are Hellenists, which were uh, Greek Jews, essentially, and there are Hebrews, which were Jews. And there's a dispute between them. The Hellenists are not being cared for. Their widows are not receiving the daily portion of food. And so they're like, hey, apostles, we've got a problem. There's... They were basically accusing the Jews of being favoritists, <laughs> of, of ignoring their widows. And so the apostles' response to this was, we can't, go on, we can't be the one to serve all these tables. And so they chose seven deacons to serve tables. And the apostles, who were functionally the pastors of the church in that time, because it was so new, they said, we must do this so that we can devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. And there was a role that elders must 
observe. This doesn't mean they never serve physically. It doesn't mean any of that. That's not what they were saying. They're not saying we're, we're way up here. It just means the matter of first importance is not whether or not someone eats bread. The matter of first importance is whether or not they eat God's word. They have it, they know it, and they're following it. When the world begins to demand that churches soften their language concerning sin, masculinity, femininity, holiness, hell, grace, forgiveness, mercy, gathering on Sundays, marriage, gender, and love, church elders are the kind of men who stand up and say, not on my watch. They're to hold fast to the trustworthy word as taught, even if it costs them their job or their life or their security. They're trusting in Christ alone. They're bound to him. They're slaves to him, as we saw Paul say last week. I pray with the changing, with the way the culture's in hyperdrive in its transformation right now, I pray that God grants me the courage and the conviction to hold fast to his word as long as I am pastoring, as long as I'm a believer even. And the same for whoever goes after me in pastoring this church and the pastors after them. But it's on the elders now in this church to establish that sort of culture here. And it's on the members of this church to make sure that kind of culture is established here. So we must understand these things. We must give ourselves to these things. The second thing we see about an elder is that he must be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. This means he's a kind of expert in God's Word. And I don't mean that he knows it 100%, that there's nothing more for him to learn. That's not what I'm saying, but that, but that he knows God's Word well enough to teach sound doctrine. And part of being able to teach sound doctrine is to be able to recognize false doctrine. This has in mind more than teaching, though. Teaching would be, uh, Jasper did a great job of this this morning. He taught us the attributes of God in Sunday school. And, and he said that God is love. And he even got to what, what makes teaching teaching is what is our response to this, these truths that we've learned this morning, is that we worship God. That's what a pastor does. It would be wrong to say God is love and then to never explain to the listener what that means for their life. That would just be mere transformation of facts. That's not helpful for the Christian life. So the pastor must urge his listeners to turn away from their sin, which, which makes them unable to love God, to turn to God by faith that they might know his love. The pastor says... God loved the world enough to send his own son to die for your sins, to be the propitiation for your sins, the payment for your sins, to take on himself what was your debt so that whoever believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. They will have eternal life. They will not perish. Pastors are men who hold fast to the Word of God, who give instruction in sound doctrine, and that instruction is persuasive in nature. It's an act of pleading with the listener to turn from the world and turn to God. The instruction is supported by a call to action. It's not simply here is the truth of God's Word. It's here is what God's Word says, and here is a right response 
to hearing God's word, repentance, and faith. Men and women, boys and girls, what this means is, as long as the elders of this church are teaching sound doctrine, you are wise to listen to it. You're wise to hear it and to bear the fruit of obedience. If it's God's word they teach, then your obedience is not to those elders, but to God himself. This is what I'm trying to teach to my own children. Obeying mommy and daddy is good and right. The Lord says to do that. And because the Lord says to do that, if you obey me as I'm teaching you correct things, then really your obedience is to God, and that's a matter of first importance. The same is true for the congregation. Finally, we see that he must be able to rebuke those who contradict sound doctrine. The the elder must not let unsound doctrine upset individuals or whole families. He must be on the lookout for false teachers and teachings. The things that his congregation may be prone to. And then he, with laser focus, with gentleness and with conviction and boldness, He's able to rebuke the teachers and the teachings, to call them to repentance if they believe such. The idea of rebuke here in Titus is that of argumentation, which is not the Facebook version of argumentation. It's debating, it's reasoning with, it's talking out things. It's an attempt to convince the person of their false teachings or to convince a person of their false beliefs from false teachers. The pastor is to shine a light on faulty doctrine. He's to expose it as it is, all for the purpose of helping someone find the gloriously life-giving doctrine of God as God has revealed it in his word. You see, the elder is not interested in propping himself up as the the sole faithful teacher. That's not what Paul's after. He's saying there are people out there who are believing things that are upsetting whole families, and they're teaching as good what is really meant for their own greed. Rebuke them. Why? Because there's a life-giving, transforming gospel that exists, and we need to get that into the hearts of men and women. And so an elder sees that as his conviction, and he commits himself to it. If I ever stand up here and I say something like, I I declare... Now say this with me, I declare that you are healthy and wealthy and strong in Jesus' name. Please instruct one of the deacons with tasers to take me out. Some of you are like, wait, is that a thing? You got tasers, deacons? Act foolish and find out. That's all I know to tell you. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor in colonial America in the early 1700s. He was uh, really kind of the leader of the Great Awakening. Many of you read his Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and were told in high school how terrible that sermon is. (laughs) At least that's how I remember it. It's a bit of an unfair treatment of Jonathan Edwards, but he has this thing to say about pastors. He says, there are two ways of representing and recommending true religion and virtue to the world which God had made, has made use of. He said, the one is by doctrine and precept. The other is by instance and example. 
this is what I'm laying before you as pastors. Uh, elders should be pastors and pace setters. They, they are to know the doctrines and precepts of God and teach those things well. But they ought to be examples of that belief in their godliness. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the head of the church, not me, not Alan Garrett, not Jasper Jack. We have a couple of elder candidates right now who've just begun their candidacy process, James Jones. We introduced them at the last members meeting, James Jones and Steve Atkinson. We are not the head of this church. Christ is the head of this church. I've joked recently, looking back to when I was hired, which my first Sunday will be seven years ago next month, or next week, sorry. Thank you. It's one happy person. I appreciate it. <laughs> but I've made the comment that I wouldn't hire me now. <laughs> but I, I praise God that he wed us together in this way. I, and I, th- I thank you for your kindness toward me in these seven years. I, I've failed you multiple times. Uh, the ones that really hurt are the ones I failed that are no longer here. Those are the ones that keep me up at night. But my comfort is that Christ is the only perfect man. He is our example. He, He goes before us and he calls us his own by his own blood. He equips us by His Spirit for the work of eldering. It's it's His church, and we're humble slaves in service to Him. Being an elder requires mileage, and that's why I say I wouldn't have hired myself then. I had zero mileage on me. I was just getting drove off the lot. (laughs) I was a lemon at times. Being an elder requires years of faithful service to God. It requires fruit from it. It requires knowledge of God's Word. It requires the ability to teach others what God's Word says and doesn't say. It requires a commitment to counsel others according to God's Word. It requires courage and more. It's not for the weak at heart. It's not for the new Christian. It's not for the people pleasers. Man, have I messed up in that area from time. or time and time again even. It's for men who will lead the local church as a steward. It's for men who will set themselves on pace for godliness and then become pace setters for others. It's for men who will oversee with a submission to the Lord. It's for men who will pastor others by teaching God's word and rebuking those who contradict it. It's for men who are pace setters and pastors. Brothers and sisters, I beg of you this morning to store these truths in your heart so that you may pursue this kind of godly character alongside your brothers and sisters here today. That all of us together can say we've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and we're moving onward toward maturity in him. Hide these truths in your heart so that you may be able to protect the role of elder at this church by holding elders to the biblical standard 
and also by affirming men who meet these standards. Hide these truths in your heart that you might pray for your elders. Pray for your elder candidates according to this list of qualifications and responsibilities. Have I asked you to pray for us? Please pray for us. I end with these, these two groups of people, believers, my brothers and sisters here today. In what way is God speaking to your heart concerning this passage this morning? Is it a conviction for a new belief? Is it the revealing of some sinfulness that needs repentance? Is it an urging towards spiritual maturity? Is it something else? I encourage you to respond faithfully to the Lord this morning. And if you're an unbeliever in here, know this, that Christ Jesus died for your sins. And if you will repent of your sins, if you will place your faith, your belief in Christ Jesus for your salvation, meaning you will follow him as the one who has saved you, then you will be saved today. And I urge you, I implore you, do not wait until a future time, but commit your life to Christ now. Would you stand to your feet as we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word today. I thank you, Lord, for this church. I thank you, Lord, for what we've seen today. Lord, would you help us to believe it with all our heart? Would you help us to, to follow you in godliness Help us to value sound doctrine. Help us to turn away, to be aware of, to have an eye looking for false teaching, false beliefs. Father, help us today is what we're asking. We are desperately dependent on you as, as members of your body together. Lord, would you let this be a place where godly elders lead? Protect us, Father, from ungodly elders now and in our future. Keep us safe, Lord. Grant to us men who have a conviction of being an under-shepherd of Christ that these are your people, not his people, that this is your kingdom, not his kingdom. It's your word, not his word. Father, would you help us all to aspire to the traits of godliness that we see here? So the book of Titus just over and again makes so plain for us to see that the fruit of the gospel is godliness. Help us to be godly men and women, godly boys and girls as we pursue you. And Lord, if there's anyone in here who is an unbeliever, Father, would you grant to them salvation now? Would you save them from their sins? Would you give them a conviction that weighs heavy on them, a burden which they have to unload at the foot of the cross? They would place their faith in Christ and be saved and begin living a new life. Father, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which resides in us now and helps us to live for you. 
We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.